Welcome to Unbalanced.mn, a new podcast where we indiscriminately hurl the epithet fascist at everything we don't like, beginning with the Minnesota GOP. I'm Logan Carroll, and Jennifer Carnahan is a fascist. <laughs> I'm Miles Bragg. And Paul Gazelka is 100% fascist. <laughs> and we are joined by our producer, Sam the Man Richards. I didn't come prepared with a local fascist, so I'm just going to go ahead and say anybody that was at the Stop the Steal protest in St. Paul. <laughs> okay. So I do I do just want to pause here really quick and say that I'm kidding. Jennifer Carnahan is not a fascist. She is, to all appearances, a kind and intelligent political operative whom I just happen to think is irresponsibly throwing around extremist rhetoric without regard for the consequences of a chair of a state Republican Party publicly advocating an anti-democratic revolution while some members of the conservative coalition who've become numb to low-level violence a la attacking protesters are graduating to organized violence a la the Whitmer kidnapping plot. Well, that is way more nuanced to take than I will bring. <laughs> but, you know, my hat's off to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that for a minute. I thought about that for a minute. <laughs> we got a good show this time. Mm -hmm. We're picking up right where we left off last time. Today, we're going to listen to our four fascism experts talk about the history of fascism, and we're going to dig into neo-fascism from the end of the Second World War up to today. But first, a news break. <laughs> Pulled up real quick. Well, this week in fascism, from It's Going Down, we have um, Adam Waffen, division member, sentenced to 16 months in prison for threatening violence against journalists. The article goes on to say that Johnny Roman Garza, a 21-year-old member of the Adam Waffen division from Arizona, was sentenced to 16 months in prison after plotting to send racist, threatening posters to journalists and advocates for marginalized groups. A statement from the United States Attorney Office reads, On the night of January 25, 2020, Garza placed a poster on a bedroom window of a prominent Jewish journalist that depicted a figure in a skull mask holding a Molotov cocktail in front of a burning home. The poster contained the victim's name and address and warned, your actions have consequences. Our patience has its limits. You have been visited by your local Nazis. So yeah, I mean, this is just a further continuation of the Adam Waffen drama. I mean, they're like I said, they're an accelerationist neo-Nazi network. Members of the group have been charged for five killings across three different states since their inception about four or five years ago. Every time I read about Adam Waffen division, it's a person that's younger than me, and I'm I'm not that old. I've seen members as young as 16 or 17 years old. Young men are being are clearly being targeted, especially disaffected men, usually poor folks. They don't see a, a different way for themselves, and so they, they enter into these hate groups because they offer camaraderie or shared interests or answers to their, their problems, you know? Yeah, 100%. Adam often is even a step past Proud Boys. They are... I mean, after you're in Adam Waffen division, what, how, how much further radicalized can you get? I mean, serious question. Serious question. Is there, I mean, that's, that's the fringiest of the fringe. I don't know. I mean, that's how a lot of these guys work. They, they see 
a young disaffected person and they try to take them under their wing. They try to get them drunk. They try to get them food, you know, make sure that they're sheltered and things like that. Because if you do that with a young person, you can win them over for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't have another news article you really want to talk about, I got one. Yeah, let's do yours real quick. This is an article by Hannah Alam. It's from NPR. Right-wing embrace of conspiracy is mass radicalization, experts warn. Quote, at conferences, in op-eds, and at agency meetings, domestic terrorist analysts are raising concerns about the security implications of millions of conservatives buying into baseless right-wing claims. They say the line between mainstream and fringe is vanishing, with conspiracy-minded Republicans now marching alongside armed extremists at rallies across the country. Disparate factions on the right are coalescing into one side, analysts say, self-proclaimed real Americans, who are cocooned in their own news outlets, their own social media networks, and ultimately their own truth. One survey found that around 77% of Trump supporters believe that Joe Biden won the election as a result of fraud, despite no evidence to support the claim. 77? 77. 77. We're all lefties. We're, none of us are like super mainstream respected media figures by any means. And yet here's NPR quoting like national security experts and they're saying the exact same things you and I are. When I started doing this work, I was out in the wilderness all by myself, it felt like. But now it's like, okay, the forest is on fire and we all need to do something about it. Uh The line between the far right and your grandma and grandpa's Republican Party is no longer there. Yeah, And when... When I talk about these right-wing rallies, you, you got your Trumpers, but not, then you got the Proud Boys on the periphery. And then you got the three percenters yeah. on the periphery of them maintaining external security. And, and they're all screaming about how the pedophile Joe Biden stole the election. Joe, or China, or Venezuela, or, or whoever it is. And watching these people chat inside their internal chats, in large part, they're in disagreement, you know? Some guys think that the Second Amendment is the issue that needs to be worked on, and Trump hasn't been very good on the Second Amendment. But then if you step out and say that in a Proud Boys chat, you're going to get fucking walloped, and that's what ends up happening sometimes. It's just, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. You should do greatest hits of those internal chats. I'd love to... Some spicy quotes. <laughs> love yeah, to see no, that. I'm, you could definitely cook that up. Okay, guys, we gotta we gotta move on. We're at forty five minutes again, and I gotta get. I'm gonna have to get it down to five minutes. So we gotta move past the news. started to dig into exactly what's going on on the right wing in America by speaking to four leading scholars of fascism, Stanley Payne, Roger Griffin, Matthew Feldman, and David Renton. To refresh your memory, Payne is an OG fascism scholar. He helped shape modern fascism studies. 
Griffin is one of the leading scholars of fascism in the world. He coined the most widely used definition of fascism. Feldman is of a younger generation studying fascism. He was uh, Roger Griffin's student, just like Griffin was Payne's student. And lastly, David Renton, who is a Marxist scholar of fascism. In the last episode, we really limited our discussion to interwar fascism. We hit on some larger concepts, but we didn't get much after the end of the Second World War. And after the, the end of the Second World War, fascism underwent a massive change. Feldman said it was the most radical change any political ideology had ever undergone. On this episode, we're going to get into those changes. We're going to talk about what they were, and we're going to trace the development of fascism up to the modern day. But for now, we're going to start where we left off. To liberal humanists like Paine and Griffin and Feldman, revolution is a key component of fascism. But the change fascism underwent as it became neo-fascism was so radical that even this key concept was rewritten. Not abandoned, mind you, but adapted. Here's Griffin again. Okay, now in the interwar period, right? There'd just been a First World War. Millions and millions of people have been in uniform fighting in trenches or fighting on the mountains in the case of Italy and Austria. So in the interwar period, you did this, you fought in the spirit of the First World War and the Russian Revolution violently. You, cre you created paramilitary groups like Mussolini did and, and, and Oswald Mosley did and all self-respecting fascists who were ready to carry arms and beat up communists and beat up the enemies. So that was interwar fascism. But it, but they could do that with a mass party. Do you know that there, there were half a million members of the of the SA by 1932 in, in Germany? That's, that's in a democracy. It was an age of masses. It was an age of mass rallies and mass movements and mass uniforms and mass organizations and mass, mass youth groups and... It, it was a crazy era, yeah? In the post-war period, liberal democracy stabilizes. Fascism, especially Nazism, is associated with concentration camps and crimes against humanity and the Holocaust. There's a complete immunity to uh, fascism and neo-Nazism, except for an extremely marginalized minority. We're talking a few thousand, yeah? So there was just no critical mass to create a revolution through violence. So there were various strategies that were, 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 have been experimented with to try and turn all the fantasy into practice. One is terrorism. Now, that tactic is exactly what the late 19th century anarchists used. They thought if they could assassinate the odd king or czar, the, the system would collapse. Well, that was just incredibly naive. Yeah? And terrorist acts, though they're horrible and horrific, uh, they don't change the system. Yeah? But that was one way desperate... Um, activists try to break out of that. Fascists have a problem trying to make their dreams reality. Okay? Now, another strategy is to go intellectual. And this is what I find really interesting. Now, in the interwar period, the fascist intellectuals were just a, a wing of the party. There was a vast outpouring of literature under both fascism and Nazism by intellectuals who were part of the, the, the party. But in the post-war period, there isn't a movement to be part of, yeah? Uh -huh. So what you get are lone intellectuals. They're not lone wolves blowing things up. They're lone wolves writing books. The idea is to keep the dream alive. If they see liberal humanism as an indoctrination, these are the tools of counter-indoctrination. Through disseminating ideas and a new vision of a new order, they will, they will create a mindset 
which will take advantage of any crisis. And by the way, they want crisis. I mean, fascists are constantly looking for the sign that the present system is about to collapse, yeah? Okay, so Griffin just jumped cars to a new train of thought, so let me explain quick. Neo-fascists are obsessed with decadence and collapse. It is a neo-fascist idea of revolution. Like Griffin said, they don't have the numbers to actually lead a revolution, so they're waiting for the decadence of civilization to rot away the core until it can no longer hold, and the whole thing collapses. Amid the ruins of civilization, then, a new fascist system could be established. Now, Griffin compares it to a twisted version of Christian eschatology, a myth about the coming end times and the establishment of an eternal paradise. But, you know, fascism. Well, they are, they are loving the apocalypse. They're loving global warming, and they're loving all the chaos in the world, and, 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 Sad, and uh, Saddam Hussein, and Assad, and... And Donald Trump. <laughs> wrong, uh, and and yeah, Donald Trump. Because the more the system breaks down, the closer the time will come when they, there's the rapture, and all the non-believers will be tortured to death by, by cosmic natural events, and they will be saved. You know, it's the most obscene, pathological... Now remember Griffin's definition of fascism that we talked about last time, palingenetic ultranationalism. Palingenesis means rebirth. It's the revolutionary part of the definition. Recall also that it doesn't mean reforming the system or changing it, but completely destroying what exists to rebuild from the ground up. A dream of the collapse of civilization is the new fascist revolution. But the fascist conception of the nation also was fundamentally changed. It became about ethnicity and racial identity. Less about being German than about being European. Read White. And the extraordinary achievement of the French New Right, which people still don't get because it's so clever. What Alain de Benoit and a few people around him did is they invented a new discourse. Yeah? They invented a new way of being a fascist. Right? So if the archetypal form of fascism is openly ultra-nationalist and racist, yeah, uh -huh. the, the European New Right have completely rejected that language, and they, they talk instead about identity. Uh -huh. A brilliant slogan by Alain de Benoit during the Vietnam War was, he said, I'm glad the Americans are being pushed out of Vietnam. He said, Vietnam... He said it in French, of course. Vietnam for the Vietnamese, Germany for the Germans, French for the French, Europe for the Europeans. Now, isn't that absolutely brilliant? It's called, now I can't use the word in, on a podcast, but it's a very, very clever way of confusing a liberal humanist because it's using the language of rights. Can I... What's well, the... I, I wanted to use the phrase mind, mindfuck. It completely throws any logical analysis of a fascist that we all have a right, and of course, right, having a right is a liberal humanist concept, isn't it? <laughs> liberal rights, yeah? They talk about a universal human right. Now, normally, the, if you, you think, ah, that's going to lead to, like, freedom, or um, uh, freedom to, from being tortured, or, or right to an education, yeah? Yeah. But this is the universal right to an identity. Now, that is absolutely brilliant. Can you see how a sort of left-wing draft-dodging attack on American imperialism has been subverted by a right-wing idea of ethnicity? If you think what that means in practice, how would you restore 
ethnic homogeneity in New York, I mean, you would end up with ethnic cleansing, wouldn't you? You'd end up with race wars in the street. Now, Stanley Payne disagrees. He applies a very strict definition that limits fascism to interwar Europe. He agrees that there were some fascist hangers-on in Italy after the wars, and that a handful of people around the world still cling to the ideology or to a slight variation that could be called neo-fascism, but... Uh, what I always say is that the more genuinely neo-fascist the phenomenon is, the less significant it is politically, and the more significant some new phenomenon is politically, the less it is likely to be genuinely neo-fascist. Interestingly, David Renton, the Marxist, agrees with Paine that fascism is, almost by definition, marginalized. The reason why people, even people who want to organize in a fascist-type direction, don't do that is that we're still living in a moment where the whole legacy of fascism is seriously malign. It's seriously a stink. The moment people start wandering around actually using fascist symbols, etc., the moment you start getting people actually seriously talking about fascism, immediately their, their closest workers drift away from them and it causes a stink and causes a problem. These interviews were recorded before the election, so a lot's changed since then, but the overwhelming consensus of all four men was that Donald Trump is not a fascist, and that the Republican Party is not fascist. Now, again, before the election, Renton confessed to me his belief that Trump could become a fascist. You know, I, I really do not, will not, in advance, rule out the possibility <laughs> of Trump going through a similar radicalization process as the only means to, to win the election and sort of make certain promises to his, his supporters in order to do that. And certainly, I think the reason why people are scared about this is they saw what happened in, in April, May and June this year with all those people going out into the streets with their AK AK-47s standing outside state legislatures and thinking those guns aren't for show. So I'm not going to rule that out. But I still think if you're honest with yourselves, he... In terms of his laws, they were Republican laws. In terms of his appointments to the Supreme Court, they're Republican appointments. You know, this is one of the weird things. You know, most liberal friends I know are much more shit scared than most Marxists I know. Recognizing that Trump, I mean, and the consensus across the board is Trump is not a fascist. I mean, with, <laughs> you know, unless unless he is by the time this airs. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I guess I'm probably the first person who said to you, actually, he could be. <laughs> For Renton, behavior is more important than ideas. Whatever ideas Trump has, if he had lost the election and then mobilized a mass base to subvert democracy, he would have become a fascist. But that's not what he did. He limited himself to legal activism. He's still engaging with his base, but he didn't mobilize a mass militarized movement to f carry guns into state legislatures. And that is what separates him from fascists. There's an interesting pattern to my conversations. Now, the older the person was, the less willing they were to talk about fascism as an immediate danger. Payne, who was born in 1934, is the only one of the four who's old enough to remember the fascist period. His scholarship is wrapped up in his own experience. Studying all these things, remember that I grew up originally in the fascist era, the aftermath of the fascist era, when people were very confused by fascism. 
uh, I was very confused by fashion. And it took a long time and a lot of study and reading and work to try to understand the general phenomenon. Now, now to Paine, the unique horrors of fascism will not and cannot be replicated. The phenomenon is worth studying as an historical event to better understand our current world. For example, fascism inspired the creation of the European Union. It's also worth studying because it continues to inspire a host of modern politics. Roger Griffin was born in 1948. He came of age about the same time the European New Right was reinventing fascism. Now, he doesn't disagree with Paine about what the dangers of fascism are, and he doesn't even necessarily think that fascism is more dangerous than Paine does. But there was more immediacy when he spoke about it. The dangers were more concrete in his telling. The fascist project continues, and continues to influence mainstream politics. This was even more true for Renton and Feldman, both of whom were born in the 70s. Now, while Renton was the only one of the four to admit even the possibility that Trump could become a fascist, Feldman described some notable differences and alarming similarities between the current moment and the beginning of the fascist era. The rise of fascism is also the story of democratic failure. And if we really look back to those those periods, one of the things that's just straight up spooky is that fascism emerged, granted, in a different context of World War One and collapsing empires and a, a number of monarchies fall in 1918. So that's a very, very different context. But immediately after that, you have severe political polarization, a pandemic that just lacerates through Europe and much of, you know, 100 million people worldwide. So this was the 1920s outside of Italy get turned into the 1930s where countries really just gave up on democracy, especially because of the other generic thing that we know is coming next year, which is an economic recession. And the sort of gradual, I'm going to use Alex uh, Ross's excellent term again, the gradual fascist creep didn't just like seize power. They were able to take uh, over institutions. The Nazis in the 1920s called it a shadow state. So the delegitimizing of certain administrative equality, certain checks and balances, if we're talking about the United States, fundamental freedoms, those are the kinds of things that the liberal state also failed on. Renton and Feldman both described a particular phenomenon which Feldman called the trampling of the cordon sanitaire. That you and I 20 years ago, you're a much younger person than I, but 20 years ago, myself and someone else uh, who might have been my age could easily recognize what we'd call the radical right of the fascist. You know, you'd visually recognize them. Their language was different, right? you would got, like, here's the mainstream, and here are those guys over there beyond the pale. And I think... Now, Renton didn't use the same words, but described the same thing. To illustrate it, he brought up the example of John McCain interacting with a Republican voter in 2008. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I want to confess here that I was raised very conservative. I actually voted for McCain back in 2008. I still have a lot of respect for the man. 
But we have to admit that he played a role in trampling that court on Sanitaire, for instance, by taking Sarah Palin as his running mate. Still, contrast him and what he said to that voter with Trump talking about his opponent, Joe Biden, 12 years later. No religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns. This isn't going away just because Trump lost the election. Say Trump loses, yeah? Uh-huh. You can have all these three million people or how many were on um, QAnon Facebook groups. You can have Trump with his 80 million Twitter followers. You're going to have a whole bunch of people feeling the election was somehow unfair because sure as hell Trump is going to say that it was unfair if he loses. And that whole bunch of those people are going to believe him. You're going to have a whole bunch of people used to um, threatening people with automatic rifles. You're going to have a whole bunch of people who every time they've seen the BLM protest have got in their cars and tried to drive down the protesters and are used to that level, low level violence. You're going to have a Democratic president who's unambitious. So, you know, in six months time, you're going to have a bunch of really unhappy people. And you're going to have Trump tweet, twittering away, as he always has, finding anyone he can as far right as he possibly can and boosting them. He's going to be taking people who, who we've never heard of and pressing the button. Um, he's going to keep on building the infrastructure for um, the far right. And if he doesn't, his son will. And if he doesn't, Tucker Carlson will. Um, so none of this will go away. I don't like the phrase creeping fascism. The most authoritarian measures which are which are going on in the states right now, things like mass incarceration of, of young black men, are things like the way in which your prison population of 40 years has quadrupled while your university population has hardly grown. And whether it's Republican or Democrat who's in power in, in three months' time, um, all those things are still going to be there. So I, I don't think it's a matter of Trump easing the state towards the idea that it's legitimate to, to, to give up on democracy. But what I think has changed is that, is that he's emboldened whole large parts of the far right, which were barely existent five years ago, and just given them such an enormous shot of energy and exposure. That's not going to go away. Okay, we've had a lot of heavy ideas so far. Some of them overlap, others contradict. But we're starting to see a hard truth about fascism, which Payne explained like this. And it's true that the concept of fascism uh, as a political phenomenon of more general existence and import is a social science construct. Or, as Griffin put it, absolute enemy of both. But you can't, look, intellectuals are like lawyers. They can make anything fit. They can use words and theories and, and, and research to prove anything at all. The, the only difference is we're not paid for doing it, like lawyers or <laughs> barristers. Okay, So, yes, uh, Stalin... Last episode, we started this discussion by complaining that the word fascism gets thrown around by lay people who use it to mean whatever they want it to, from Ben Shapiro all the way to canceling Ben Shapiro. And we seem to have arrived at the pretentious claim that only academics get to do that. But that's not what Payne or Griffin, Feldman, or Renton are saying. They were all very gracious and generous with their time. But we've kind of come full circle back to George Orwell. 
1946 essay, Politics in the English Language, is an early iteration of the ideas that became Newspeak in his 1949 novel, 1984. And fascism gets a mention. Quote, Stuart Chase and others have come near to claiming that all abstract words are meaningless, and have used this as a pretext for advocating a kind of political quietism. Since you don't know what fascism is, how can you struggle against fascism? One need not swallow such absurdities as this, but one ought to recognize that the present political chaos is connected with the decay of language, and that one can probably bring about some improvement by starting at the verbal end. Before we start talking about what the fuck is happening on the American right, which we're going to get into in future episodes, we need to have the language to talk about it. Now, not being qualified to referee the debate between these academics, what do we make of it? Things like, so let me again finish with an analogy. I know you just want a simple answer and I can't, can't provide it, but that's what happens when you engage with academics. That's, uh, I'm afraid, the price that you paid. And emeritus professors are also three of us. Well, thank you for talking to us. So I think that's part of your problem. But conspiracy theories, for example, like QAnon, even if they're talking about different stuff, it's almost like a volcano. We look at the sort of, you know, save the children as almost the, the exotic bit, but actually when the lava starts flowing, it flows in pre-existing ways, you know, like it goes to where the lava has flowed previously. It's almost impossible for QAnon to avoid, given its kind of world-building conspiracy theory, to avoid anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's so well established, these awful anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in kind of Western culture, that it's impossible to come up with new ones that don't go into that, that pattern of the lava. In other words, whatever is happening today, it's following the patterns that yesterday's politics established. Whatever's happening on the American right today, we're still in the early days of it. There are many different directions it could take, and mimicking fascism is really, it's only one of them. But we're far enough along that we know it's a reactionary movement, just like fascism was. And what it is reacting to is alarmingly similar to what fascism was reacting to. Here's Griffin, and he's not pointing out a similarity. This is something I'm reading into his words. Uh, there'd also been the Russian Revolution. It seemed very clear to people in the interwar period that you, you, history was in turmoil, history was in flux, and that there was a new, new age dawning which would be basically achieved through breaking the present system and replacing it with a new system. Now, if you were on the right, the main em enemies of a new order were, were liberals, uh, d Democrats, who wanted basically pluralism. They wanted people to have votes and they wanted different interest groups in society to be, uh, to be represented. And they also were tolerant of... Um, minorities such as Jews and, and, and Roma and foreigners and migrants and all that sort of stuff, yeah? Uh -huh. Right, so the, the first enemy was liberal democracy, which was also allowing homosexuals to have rights and feminists to have rights. So if you look at Weimar Republic, it was just extraordinarily, incredibly liberal and permissive, yeah? Now for a right-winger, this is all a side of... I want to end by reading the concluding paragraph of an essay Renton wrote for the magazine Jacobin. Quote, Nothing would stop a new form of reactionary mass politics from taking shape. Its growth, coinciding with ecological devastation, mass migration, and the intensification of border regimes. Such a regime might lack the mass character of fascism, but find itself in a situation of even greater social crisis than interwar Europe. 
In either of these scenarios, future generations would find themselves facing opponents whose movements and regimes were unlike fascism, and yet every bit as cruel. The further we get from the Second World War, the more vague the collective memory of fascism becomes, and the harder it is to remember exactly why fascism is so despised, the easier it will be for a renascent right to adopt forms of reactionary politics which follow much more closely in the footsteps of the past. into these guys um i think my opinion is probably closest to feldman's he really emphasizes the failure of neoliberalism and those types of economic platitudes and how that directly correlates to the rise of fascist organizing and ideology and i definitely see that as a a, a common thread throughout all these different groups that i've been exposed to over the years they are definitely disillusioned with the neoliberal or the quote-unquote liberal way of uh, politicking, you know? Yeah, that was one of the things that like really surprised me when I started getting into this was this idea of fascism being anti-capitalist in any sense of the word. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think it was Payne said that didn't make it into the final edit it's not exactly anti-capitalist. It doesn't want to destroy capitalism. It just wants to control it. Mm -hmm. Like the problem is not capitalism. The problem is that they don't want any competition. Right. And, and I mean, and then that like the ideology then separated from like the organizing techniques where the, the anti-capitalism is a big part of the sales pitch, at least. Well, yeah, you, you definitely have folks that put the socialist into national socialist. They think more about the collective. The Traditionalist Workers Network was one of them, headed by uh, Matthew Heimbach for a period of time. He, um, yeah, like I said, was trying to make the fascist project, the American neo-fascist project, into one that explicitly incorporated into its program the white working class and tried to p push that message into the, the GOP or the the right wing as much as possible. And to a degree, I think they've been successful. Uh, you, you see that in the kind of rhetoric with like a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton, these types of opportunist guys on the right that are clearly shaping themselves up for like a presidential run or something. Yeah. Yeah. When you say project, how do you like, like, what's that mean when you say that? Look at the wide range of people that are increasingly coming under the far right tent. Um, for some, that the 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 ends of the fascist project for them as individuals might be to see uh, abortion repealed or other progressive pieces of legislation repealed and taken off the table. For some, it might be um, the establishment of a far right party. Uh, for some, it might be the Pacific Northwest Initiative, which goes back decades. Uh, that, that's a long-term neo-Nazi project 
that more or less calls for the balkanization of America to break off the Northwest, including Washington and Oregon and the northern part of Idaho, I believe, and to make it into a new state and more or less an all-white ethno state. Um, they try to dress that down a lot of times. They try to make it not sound as explicit or as uh, racial as it is, but that is what the the fascist project could be looked at as for some it's it's smaller measures in in the immediate term and for some it's long-term measures that all fit under the far right tent i didn't quite know what i was looking for when i started talking to these people but but the big takeaway was that we can compare what's happening to you know what happened in the past the the one thing that you mentioned was the the revolutionary nature of what's going on. I think we're, we're, it sounds like we're both comfortable saying increasingly revolutionary nature. People showing up armed to protests is, that's a heavy statement. That's a pretty heavy statement. There's, you know, the, the reactionary nature of it, like what it's reacting to, this idea of decadence, you know, and there's this increasing sense of a nation, of a Christian nation, that is definitely that's under attack, that is not exclusively, but overwhelmingly white. I mean, I've heard Christians talk about how, you know, ICE, what they're doing, well, that's just, they're just enforcing the law. Like, this is just the law people need. And it's like, like you're, you're a Christian. Like, you're supposed to believe in, like, this concept of, like, a common humanity that supersedes any, like, narrow legalistic definitions of citizenship. But... But it's just not there anymore. That's part of that cordon sanitaire that Feldman brought up, you know. There, there's no longer a clear distinction between the GOP and what people are calling Trumpism, or what I think could be more accurately called is called fascism. Yeah, that, that line has been trampled. This is interesting, because you said you, like, you agree most with Feldman. Like, what's really weird, man, I found myself agreeing with pain the most in some ways. The idea of like this super narrow use of the word fascist. It feels like something new. <laughs> I I honestly don't know whether the the radical elements or the moderating elements will win out or if the radical elements will get moderated. It's it's an extremely dangerous moment, and it continues to be. As Renton was saying towards the end there, we're looking at a Biden presidency that's not going to be solving all the, the the problems that people are looking to it to solve, but I, I, it does worry me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> That's a pretty nice like nut graph for this show, right? That's a pretty good encapsulation of what we're doing here, what we're hoping to learn over the next however long we're here for. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, twenty twenty fascist centennial. Right. Yeah. I do think there's merit to Paine's definition of fascism, but I just wouldn't limit it to, you know, interwar Europe and a small continual fringe that we have today. I think that that, that small fringe has exploded and uh, endured a great period of growth under the, the Trump presidency. <laughs> and I'm just sitting over here like, like, no, man, but it's something new. <laughs> it's not the same as it was. It's like, let's give it a new name. You said it best in the last episode that we've got plenty of time to argue about this. Then mm -hmm. also maybe 
move past the BS semantics. Yep. Start picking up baseball bats. No. I'm <laughs> I, I, I just to be on the record, I completely disavow my co-host entirely That's fine. and without I'm, reservation. I'm, I'm used to that. <laughs> <laughs> In that case, I think that concludes our two-part pilot. Hell yeah. Thank you for listening. We're excited to dig into this. We're excited to take this little adventure with you, dear listener. If you like what you heard today, uh, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash unbalancedmn, where you can sign up to get some maybe exclusive stuff in the future. And... uh, Support the project while doing it. Thank you all for joining us at home and for listening and for sharing with your friends. We really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN, on Facebook at unbalanced.mn, and you can check out our soon-to-be-updated website, unbalanced.mn. Bumper music this week is Party Barge by Silver Jews and Christmas Song by Vitamin Pets. Both are licensed under a non-commercial attribution share-alike Creative Commons license available online at freemusicarchive.org. And our theme song is, as always, Four Faces of Fascism Part 2 by Daniel Carroll.